Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to this very special episode of the Curzon Film Podcast. This week we will be doing a roundup of the best films we've seen at this year's London Film Festival. I'm Sam Howlett and I'm joined by Jake Cunningham. Hello. Um, so this is the 2017 London Film Festival and for about 10 days... Yeah, 10 days. Uh, we've been uh, putting ourselves through absolute torture watching some of the world's uh, finest new films... Uh, before anyone else gets a chance to, so we're very lucky to have been given this opportunity. Yeah, and if you haven't actually, um, if you haven't been to the festival and you haven't seen the things we're going to be talking about, we're only going to briefly review them anyway, so yeah. there's no spoilers and stuff. Uh, but as a prequel to this episode, you, if you haven't listened to it, you might want to go back and listen to the episode that we did with Kate Taylor as well, yeah. the programmer for the festival, uh, to give you an idea about how the films are selected, the journey from kind of the first festivals like Sundance in January and how the films kind of end up getting here before we get to see them. Yeah, and that'll make a very nice double bill. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think quite a few, few of the films we're going to be talking about today will also be devoting an entire show to further down the line. Um, so we'll just be doing brief little reviews of some of our favourites this year. Um, but should we start with the big one, get that out of the way, what's kind of, I think, probably the most popular film at the festival, yeah. the kind of the, one of the big sort of popular talking points, yeah. which is Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Mm. To give you a peek behind the curtain of the uh, press screenings, we kind of, generally most of them happen in one location where the biggest screen is about 600 seats. Um, but The Shape of Water, the press screening was open to Odeon Leicester Square, where you're looking at over 1500 available yeah. seats um and so there was a, a f like two or three fil press films that were open to leicester square uh shape wars being one of them so it just shows you how high the demand was yeah to get into that mm. and it's his first film since um crimson peak and what's really great about del toro's career at the moment is that he's finally it seems like he's finally doing what he wants to do solely he doesn't mm. like have to because as, as much as i think he loves things like hellboy and like Pacific Rim, you do get a bit of a feeling that they are to serve a purpose further down. Yeah. Do you think that's and, fair? Well, and you look at both of those products are now going ahead without him. Yeah. So it's, I think in his other films, the fact it is him, Del Toro, is completely essential to the creation of those stories. Yeah. But evidently with Hellboy, Rise of the Blood Queen and Pacific Rim Uprising... Mm -hmm. Previously, Maelstrom, much mm, better. Yeah. Um, they're going ahead without him. 
Yeah. Um, so Shape of Water is set in 1962, uh, and it sees Sally Hawkins as a mute cleaning lady um, at a top-secret uh, government research lab where a monster has been brought in for experiments. Uh, the monster is very similar to sort of the creature from the Black Lagoon, or if you've seen Hellboy, there's a character in that called Abe Sapien who mm. is very, has a very similar design. Yeah, I, even down to the, the big facility that they're in, there are elements that this could be a Hellboy prequel. Yeah. And I know Del Toro had to, to come out and say, this is not a secret Hellboy prequel. <laughs> this is just my yeah. Black Lagoon. And he's in the credits, he's just called Amphibian yeah. Man. Um, and yeah, she kind of sparks up a sort of interesting relationship with this uh, creature. Um, and I think ultimately, ultimate, the film is a, is a romantic film, uh, yeah, which you well, wouldn't I think, expect. I think and it's a very adult romantic film. Yeah, he's kind of gone the whole way with his, um, his journey of doing a monster film with a hint of romance. Mm. Uh, in the like, like Pan's Labyrinth, you've got the, um, the maid and the soldier, which is a really nice subplot in there and then Crimson Peak there was the kind of memes of yeah. it's not a horror film it's a gothic romance <laughs> Crimson Peak is a horror film I yeah. do have to say it is scary um, and then now this is a, a romance film that has horror yeah. elements and you've also got what's really great about this film is that there's so much else going on as well so you have um, Richard Jenkins who he's brilliant is ever watchable um, yeah. and Seems to only the past few years people really appreciate him. Mm. Um, he's really good as he's her neighbour um, with his own kind of. Uh, he's got a really sad yeah. story. I think he's got one of the best scenes in the film involving um, someone that he has a crush on. Yeah, and it's just just terribly sad. And he's kind of this. He's the hopeless romantic that yeah. I think Del Toro is. Really. And he narrates the film as well. Yeah, nice narration. And then Octavia Spencer is. Uh, Sally Hawkins' friend at work. You've also got Michael Stuhlbarg as a scientist at the laboratory with his own secrets. And then uh, in the villain role is uh, Michael Shannon, mm. the Shan Man. Because Sam aren't, aren't the real monsters, the humans. Indeed. Indeed yeah. they are. And I think at first you could kind of think that Michael Shannon's just kind of coasting along here. He's just playing Michael Shannon but he really goes for this one as a mm. villain. He's a proper villain. Yeah, um, he's very kind of spitty and pussy yeah, and greasy. Literally pussy yeah. in one scene. Um, yeah, I, I really liked Michael Shannon in this film because he just gave it his all. Mm. He was a full-on villain. Um, and this film, I think, is so just enjoyable. Yeah, it's, it's really fun, which I think is more... Like, Ignoring Pacific Rim, which obviously is just an out-and-out yeah. out blockbuster, um, out of his very personal projects, this is the most fun, this is the most enjoyable. Um, I think he's really rom romanticising cinema itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a kind of a love letter to sweeping romances, but also you've got the Cold War feel to yeah. it. And, and he's really... Sci-fi and yeah. horror and... Yeah, like yeah. B-movie feel, which yeah. obviously... Um, but there is, there's a particular moment where um, the amphibian man sees a cinema screen. And I this, this film made me think of... Ro Roger Ebert described cinema as a machine for empathy. And I, think, I don't think that's, that can be argued that that's in every film. But I think here, when you're 
he's actually putting the cinema screen in front of the alien creature who we don't recognize, who we can't understand what he's saying, but instantly we are empathetic with this otherworldly thing. And I think that's that's what he's going for in all of his films, really. It's like humanizing and connecting with the outer people. So there we go. That's Shape of Water. Um, I'm not sure the UK release date for that. Uh, I think it's going to be February, so it's a February, bit away. Yeah, right away. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, but before we move on to other films, we actually we have a few other Curzon staff will be dropping in to uh, give their opinions. So not just our boring voices, because you've probably had enough of us. Um, so we'll be bringing in uh, a few other Curzon employees to come and chat about their favourites too. So make sure you stick around for that. Okay. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit about a film called Darling. Right. Okay. Which, um, because at the festival you kind of you're given the um, the sort of schedule of the press screenings and you pick out a few favourites, but there are there are gaps in your schedule and you think, okay, I've got two hours to kill there. So, um, okay, well, I'll take a chance. Take a chance. And I took a chance in this film called Darling, which I knew nothing about, um, apart from that it was to do with ballet. And I remembered that on our previous pod, uh, LFF podcast a few weeks ago, Kate Taylor recommended Darling. So I uh, thought I'd check it out, and uh, what a recommendation it was. Uh, this is a really, really beautiful film. Um, I think the best way to describe it would be Black Swan, but without the kind of over-the-top melodrama and without any of the weird body horror. Right. Um, it's about a ballerina in Denmark, I believe, who um, has a, um, an injury on her hip, which means she has to give up ballet and her partner is the lead choreographer of this huge production she has to step down and then someone else replaces her and she kind of struggles with that for a while and eventually she thinks okay the way I can do it is I can come in and help te- help choreograph and help teach this girl who um, who I should be and um, there's lots of stuff about jealousy and like about physicality um, but it's 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 grounded it feels real. There's, like I said, there's no over-the-top melodrama that you might expect from this kind of film. Um, it has a Skarsgård in it, but a lesser-known Doesn't Skarsgård. matter which one. Just, yeah. a, just as long as your film's got a Skarsgård, <laughs> we'll be there. Uh, yeah, so that's Darling. Um, do check that out when it is released. Okay, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, we might as well go on our, our chance screenings. Mm. So um, I'd like to pick one out, which will probably end up in my favourites of the festival, to be honest. And that's um, that's Winter Brothers. And this is a Danish film uh, written and directed by uh, Hilnir Palmerson. And uh, I didn't know a lot about it going in. Um, if you see a promo image, you it's got this chap with a, a hard hat and a kind of piece of fabric tied around his nose and mouth and it looks like that promotional image from son of saul do you remember that yes yeah and um so i i just knew it was danish miners and not much more beyond that and it was called winter brothers so went into it and um this is this is amazing it's really very darkly funny it's about this chap who's stealing chemicals from the mine that he works in using it to make moonshine at home and then bringing the moonshine back into the mine and selling it to the other miners. Uh, and then one of the other miners ends up in hospital. And so the the other miners and his brother kind of turn against him a bit and just stop buying his moonshine. And so that's really about it in terms of plot. Um, it's an hour 40 minutes. It's really beautifully shot. It's uh, it's not just that one still image that extends over to the Son of Saul look. It's got that kind of 
ghostly floating look to it, a lot of just kind of looking behind people's backs and following their actions. And it starts in the mine. And something that I noticed about maybe films like, films set in mines, you can see the mine. The mine is underground. You shouldn't be able to see the mine. Um, and this film is actually, like, you can't see it. You're like, they have head torches, and that is how they light it, which makes sense. And so you kind of spend these first five minutes of the film in the dark, just by these headlights. He's like, what is this about? And then it cuts outside, and it is bright white snow. And it's just, it, the whole thing looks amazing. Uh, it's, shot on, it's uh, shot on film. It's all got this really brilliant grain to it. Um, I would just go and check it out for the visuals alone, but it is really, really funny. It's really awkward. Uh, it's got elements of a kind of darker Thomas Vinterberg peep show. It's really okay. cool. Um, definitely check out Winter Brothers. All right. Okay, we're now joined by Kate Garova, who's going to tell us some of her highlights of LFF 2017. Hi, Kate. Good morning. Yes, uh, I'm now speaking at near the end of the London Film mm-hmm. Festival, and so uh, I'm tired, that's what I'm going to yeah. say. Um, but I think the Film Festival... Uh, arguably does something and that is it launches very fresh and distinctive uh, voices and new talent so there's sort of three films that mm-hmm. I've picked out that I think do that um, the first one's out next week I Am Not okay. A Witch um, you're probably yep. going to be talking about that anyway um, at some point but I'll have next episode maybe okay um, tell us your thoughts um, I'm Not A Witch is a uh, unusual African film Um, it's about a nine year old girl who is accused of witchcraft Um, and um, and sort of it's just her story really and it's imbued with a certain sense of um, uh, of Zambian humour which I had never encountered before I think it is just um, it's really distinctive it's a very unusual story it's shot really well, you do feel that you are in different filmic territory to the yeah. one that you would normally be in. Okay. And it's a great performance from the girl and very startling. So definitely worth watching. Yeah. And then I also love Jeune Femme. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is about a 30-year-old woman, 30, 29, 30 or 31. Uh, we're not quite sure of her age. And when we meet her, she is... Um, trying to talk to her ex-boyfriend who has kicked her out and right. she does this by banging on his door and then eventually head-banging on his door until she's knocked <laughs> unconscious and an ambulance has to arrive and then she has to have medical help and it's clear that she is um well some people might call it unhinged but I think she's just pure angry yeah, and okay. um and she is startling um in the sense that she's this woman, this girl that we don't, again, usually see on screen. Yeah. So it's really quite um, a unusual performance. It feels very nouvelle vague. So okay. uh, it's a very, uh, I'm overusing the word, but fresh again, yeah. uh, performance. And it's really about her journey back to sanity in a way okay. and how she does that. But it's just full of like this, it's, it's full of warmth. Yeah. So it's shot in a way that is non-judgmental about her character or some of the decisions that she makes whether they're good or they're bad she's just doing the best that she can and it's I think that there will be a lot of people who who have a sense of identity with it because you know often you're just lost and you don't know what is the right decision to make Um, so that's great Um, so that's Jeune Femme 
And then the final film, and I saw this at a different festival, and I was really happy to see it playing here, and it is going to be on release, new way for releasing it, so that will mean it will be a quite limited release. But it's a film called Western, and Western right. is about um, this uh, a, a German um, mining company and a group of Germans go to a very small uh, Bulgarian town to yeah. help um, uh, to you know to put in a sort of water plant, and it's the difference between um, them coming here to this incredibly rural, some might say slightly backward yeah. um, environment, and in particular the sort of the plant manager, he really tries to um, uh, to become part of the local community, whereas all his sort of fellow countrymen mm. and the Germans don't integrate at all, and they sit very apart. And so it's about his sort of kind of um, friendship, some of the friendships that he forms in in this sort of small town. And it says a lot about, I guess it says a lot about masculinity, um, but it also says a lot about culture. It's a really quietly thought out provoking film that like I said I saw at a previous festival and has absolutely stayed with me okay. for some of the performances yeah great Kate Grover thank you very much thank you okay we're now joined by Irena Musumeci hello Hi. okay uh, what was your highlight this year from LFF um, there is one film that I absolutely loved over mm-hmm. everything else that I've seen at the festival and it's a film that I've been waiting for um, and it's a film called 120 BPM beats per minute, uh, which is directed by Robin Campillo, um, a French filmmaker who directed Eastern Boys, very, very interesting um, drama, which was out a couple of years ago. Um, Robin started as a script writer and uh, became a director. He wrote The Class, the Laurent Canté uh, film. And uh, I think this is a film that exudes passion for the subject and really kind of a real engagement with its topic. Its topic is, um, it's the lives of a group of uh, young uh, AIDS activists mm-hmm. who were part of ACT UP, uh, which was one of the first big AIDS charities uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. ACT UP kind of came to the fore because they were very, um, they used very shocking techniques right. to kind of really shake people from what they perceived was the absolute indifference mm-hmm. uh, of the world towards AIDS-related death. Um, full disclosure, uh, around about that time, uh, I was equally shocked and interested in what right. ACT UP were doing, and it really grabbed my uh, my attention. I was a massive Queen fan, and okay. when Freddie Mercury died, um, it was probably the first time I'd ever heard about AIDS or anything right, related okay. to that. I grew up in Catholic Italy. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> um, so it was something that I felt very, very passionate about, and so I became an activist myself. Yeah. I wasn't part of ACT UP, but I did do a few things. Okay. Um, in Italy with local groups. So I really recognized a lot of the energies and what was going Mm. on in the film, the dynamics of the discussion between the activists and how they negotiate, um, how they're going to represent their cause and what they are going to do, what length they're prepared to go to fight it. But at the core of it uh, is a story about people who are fighting for the right to live and the right to love who they love. And so it's a a film that just has empathy all over it. Um, And it's not just simply a kind of uh, 
compassionate tragic story who everyone's gonna die because it's a film that really has the power to defy death i think really it's got an energy you know coming from its title it really runs at 120 beats per minute it's got some amazing amazing scenes that celebrate life in all its glory uh dancing partying being with friends joining a cause making sure that illness doesn't mean that your life stops yeah Uh, and therefore it also celebrates sexuality in a very overt and in a very very important important way um there's a scene in it that really uh i think is probably the most important scene i've seen in a film Mm -hmm. this year uh which is a sex scene uh between two people one of whom is ill uh and the other one isn't and uh, that was something that as a discourse in terms of aids activism and hiv activism is so important that you can continue to have a sexuality um if you protect yourself if you look after yourself and you look after others but it doesn't mean you know it kind of defies the stigma And so it's fantastic that it's represented in that way and really so celebrated. There is just so much uh, about this film that is very erotic and really sexy and just absolutely brilliant. Um, There's also... uh, So I don't want to give away the ending, but uh, there was a point in the film where I thought, okay, the story's over, this is is it, it's finished. And the following 10 minutes absolutely devastated me physically (laughs) i was uh sobbing i was a mess i could not talk and it's precisely you know it wasn't um it wasn't one of these things oh this is so sad that people are dying because people are dying in the film but it's what comes after that was represented in such a cathartic way and in such a powerful and recognizable way uh and it really did something to me this sequence and i just think it was, yeah, a complete catharsis. So it's a film that leaves you energized, that will want to make people embrace a cause, uh, yeah. particularly if they know people who are affected still today by AIDS and HIV. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a great celebration of believing in the power of saying something, doing something, and really... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today defying silence and death um so it's it's terrific and i i don't think i'm even doing it justice by (laughs) heaping all this hyperbole on it because you don't want to like raise expectations and then people expect something different but it's a very very visceral film as an experience i think it's just absolutely wonderful um yeah awesome cool thank you very much thank you Okay, we're now joined by Elliot, who's going to tell us about The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Elliot, what did you like about it so much? Uh, it's probably one of the funniest films I've seen in a long time. Okay. Um, 
I don't know if that makes me sound like a complete maniac, but <laughs> yes, the 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 way the dialogue was delivered yeah. versus what's happening on screen okay. is probably one of my favourite juxtapositions of, uh, you know, it, it just made me laugh a lot. Right, okay. Um, the, there were a couple of moments in the film, especially, where I felt like they kind of broke character, right. which, which I really enjoyed. There was a, a particular scene where Colin Farrell's character just just breaks down and yeah. it's the first real emotional kind of point in the film and probably the only emotional point in the film I can think of um, which made it that much more uh, impactful yeah. for me so okay um, have you seen um, Lanthimos's other stuff before this I've seen The Lobster okay which I found very funny but it was definitely in in you know it was it was more humorous in, in the idea that the, the idea of it was was so silly um, right. Okay. It's, you know, what, what's your favorite animal? Uh, you know, yeah. Going to turn into your favorite animal. I heard some. I heard someone uh, describe his films as being a, a pub question turned into a film. Okay. Which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> so, what's your favorite animal? Okay, we'll make a film based yeah. around this concept. And this one is so. So, if you had to kill a member of your family, who would it right. be? Right. Um, but yes. Okay. So it's like the humor coming from because I found it quite like, alienating for the audience. Yeah, I suppose because because of how um, how auto cued everyone yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Um, it means that maybe the tension isn't wrapped up quite as high. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine a different director doing something very different sure, with yeah. that story. Um, but because of that, I felt like it was it just conceptually just just yeah. kind of drove me to to be much more engaged with it. Um, but again, I, I definitely saw it as as more of more of a kind of farcical yeah. humorous okay. ride more than anything yeah because um, I think a lot of people are kind of talking about how disturbing it is how freaky it is and yeah definitely and it is it is yeah. definitely you know it's, it's a very dark film it's, it's, it's it asks a lot of horrible questions yeah um, the decisions that both yeah Rob Gaiman and Cameron Farrell's characters make um, or, or choose not to make yeah, sure. <laughs> are particularly yeah. galling, especially as a parent, just going like, yeah. so you're not not going to put yourself forward <laughs> in any of this? No. Yeah. And, and that is actually kind of written off from the very beginning. Right. They have a conversation about what decisions they're not going to make. Yeah. Which, which again, I really enjoyed because it added to, it added to the, the conceptual humour of it. Yeah. For me. I think as well there's something about seeing these A-list celebrities like Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman acting in these scenes and reading that dialogue and doing those things that is just so weird and yes yes and and general anaesthetic is yeah. never going to sound the same <laughs> to me ever again um, great Elliot thank you very much no cheers thank you um, I'd like to talk a bit about uh, thoroughbreds uh, which um so at the time of recording, we don't know what's one best film. No. Uh, but that's in the competition category. And this is a film um, based on the play by Corey Finley, who is adapting it and directing, writing and directing this one. Uh, it stars Anya Taylor-Joy, who you'd recognise from The Witch and Split, and then Olivia Cooke, who you'd know from Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. And they play these kind of bored, upper-middle-class... Uh, sort of teenagers about to head off to college um, and then Olivia Cook's character has a kind of the rumours circulating about what uh, she has done to a horse um, 
and the kind of transpires from there is this kind of dark, pitch black, at times comedy um, about and very similar to things like Heather's or Cruel Intentions, um, and it's all most of it's set in this huge mansion, um, and the way it's I think stylistically it's kind of similar to Stoker where you've got loads of like close-ups and loads of like the sound is like really in your ear like there's a scene of someone like sharpening a pencil that just feels like they're doing it right next to your head um, so really impressive that you've he's turned a play into something so visual mm. uh, so cinematic so uh, I, I read like this is American Psycho meets Heather's I think that's a fair assessment yeah I mean it, it yeah it's, it's it's dark it's black comedy it's also um Anton Yelchin's final film oh, right, as well. Okay. So, and he's he's very good in it as a he's got, he's got a kind of twisted character. But yeah, so I think for that reason alone, it's worth worth watching. Yeah, um, I do. I think it's it's nice to focus on these films that are in competition or the mm. first feature because there are big films that are playing the festival, like The Shape of Water that we mentioned, but other films like Call Me by Your Name and The Party. Uh, the party, I mean, uh, is already out. Call Me By Your Name has been around since Sundance and it's been given so much coverage already. Yeah. Um, and we look forward to giving that a full episode. But I think the great thing about the festival is it's a chance for us to profile films that maybe don't get a release yeah. or um, like will be around, won't be around for a couple of months or even this time next year. Yeah. Um, so in in that respect, uh, I think it would be a good time to bring Columbus. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a film by a uh, YouTube filmmaker? Yeah, Coganada. well, Coganada. Um, th- he prefers Vimeo. Okay. Um, <laughs> because uh, you get, you're get more likely to have your stuff not taken down. Um, and so he was his video, he was a video editor by trade and um, just made these great video collage, uh, video essays on Vimeo. He loves Ozu. Um, he's got this amazing video, which is just three separate screens and it's uh, re-showing different f- composition from Ozu films and how he kind of reuses this same composition throughout. And um, thing with what he, what he likes about those Ozu films is like this use of frames within frames within frames. So you're shooting from maybe one side of a kitchen through a kitchen door and through that kitchen door there might be a mirror and you're, you're maximising your space with the minimum amount of impact from the camera and so people can walk in and out of a scene and have a natural conversation and the camera doesn't affect, mm. doesn't have to bounce around and get shot reverse shot yeah. and tracking you can leave it as it is so you can really get lost in the space and the conversation um, and that is obviously something that has translated into Columbus yeah and Columbus isn't considering his background <clears throat> is so kind of visual and experimental the film is actually very human mm. and very natural and is just a very simple you know, kind of, it feels very like sort of American independent Sundance film story mm. of a girl in uh, Columbus, Indiana. Mm. Um, sort of, you know, uh, sort of crossroads in her life. And then she meets uh, John Cho, whose father is a, a professor who's uh, in a coma in hospital and he's visiting the town because of his father's condition. And they just kind of meet up with each other by chance and just have conversations about life. Yeah. And the, the backdrop is that his father is an architect professor and Columbus, Indiana is this strange modernist metropolis mm. uh, full of absolutely amazing buildings. The city was kind of just born post-war and so it's around the 50s that all these structures started getting built and 
his dad really loves it. He there's a point where she asks him if his dad believes in an afterlife, and he says he believes in modernism. <laughs> um, and so you get these conversations, as you say, about life, but you get these backdrop of she's effectively giving John Cho her list of her favorite mm. buildings. So every conversation, it takes place in front of one yeah. of these. And uh, you do, they talk about the buildings as well. I think that's actually what's really nice about it is you could just make this a beautiful setting to have conversations about philosophy yeah. in life. But they actually address the buildings and they They're talk about there, the role yeah. of the buildings and you really get swept up in the meaning of architecture and the meaning yeah. of a single brick and things like this. Yeah. And then there's actually a moment where uh, it's the Indiana City Hall which has these kind of floating brick mm. structure out the front and you're almost building up to it the whole time. And uh, then there's, there's just this one shot and you're suddenly kind of, you get it. And it's like, I, was, I, I love this building uh, because you've had an hour and a half of them yeah. kind of talking about what this means. Um, and I, I can't wait to turn around and watch it again. It's yeah. one of those ones where even as the credits roll, you think, yes, get me back in yeah. there. Yeah, John Cho also showed up in another film uh, called Gemini this year, which this is, is a noir. This is a kind of uh, mumblecore noir where Zoe Kravitz is a Hollywood actress and Lola Kirk is her assistant, and a crime takes place, which leaves and Lola Kirk sort of sets it on herself to Has solve Danny it. Ocean robbed the Bellagio? Is that the crime? That's the crime. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, and John Cho is a detective. So the film. You know, it wears its genre on its sleeve. Uh, it's very much trying to be a kind of Raymond Chandler-esque noir, but for the Instagram era. Oh, lovely. That will go on the poster. Yeah, well done, mate. Um, right, so what else do, have we seen? A Fantastic Woman. Mm. Yeah, I think that will be out fairly soon. Yeah. But um, that, was, that was a great one where uh, we just, it was a consequence, uh, coincidence of time and place, and we yeah. could just get in. Uh, and that's that's really great because you don't have time to say, oh, I don't want to... You know, you spend so much time fawning over the program and planning. Yeah. So when you actually just go, oh, can I get into something? What can I get into? Quickly, we'll get in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, God, that was a real treat, wasn't it? That's really, yeah. That's an astounding film. Um, and I, that... Because if you listen to our uh, Berlin Festival roundup, um, Kate and Damon talked about Fantastic Woman. And so it has been in my mind for such a long time now. And it really does live up to yeah. the expectations. I think we're going to talk to Kate in a bit. Um, so it'd be, it'd be nice to see if kind she, of yeah. like nine months later after Berlin that yeah. Fantastic Woman is finally kind of getting an English audience. And uh, I imagine that must be quite exciting. It's, it's so cool to... Um, like this is what's great about the festival circuit is you get this, you follow something. Yeah. And that was me with Columbus. Right, right. Um, that seeing that Coganada, whose videos I love, has this film at Sundance. And you're so willing to love it. And you think, oh, yeah, Sundance loved it. All right, Berlin. <laughs> and then it's like, it's tracking, it's like, oh, people still really like it. Oh. And then you get you start to worry about yourself. And it's like, oh, no, what if I don't love it? <laughs> no, what am I going to do? Um, and that, yeah, it's, it's almost like, like a sport in a yeah. strange little way, isn't it? That yeah, you, it is. Yeah. And you develop these fandoms. Yeah. Um, but yeah, F uh, Fantastic Woman, that's about a, um, a trans woman in Chile whose partner dies. And um, she kind of goes on this process of, of grieving, but she can't really na like do that. She's just such a victim of physical and mental violence mm. um, because her partner 
uh, was an older man and you've got his family who never quite accepted her um, and he's and it was it was like a surprise death as yeah. well and so there was stuff like planned holidays apartments cars like, dogs yeah. just admin yeah, yeah. and it, it is like and that's actually something that doesn't really get brought up in films about yeah. like a family death is that there's so much boring stuff to do yeah but while you have to grieve and mourn and change mm. your entire life yeah um, but the, as as someone who is having to live in a violent situation already yeah who, like particularly in South America violence against trans women is very high and so to have to go through all of that that you do on a daily basis already whilst grieving the person mm. you love yeah. and still having to effectively live through moments of their life because you're having to go through their stuff you're having to meet their family who have never respected you or no. liked you and yet he is never blamed like the the uh, the partner no like, that's it it's yeah. everything is her fault yeah. and she's ruined everything um but it's what is what I think is great is the title of the film because that fantastic has a kind of um, vibrance to it. Yeah. And there are a few moments in the film where it just, you just kind of see where she's a singer and it kind of loses itself into these hallucinatory dream moments mm. where suddenly the whole, this, there's a really sad club scene when she's just trying to kind of feel something, yeah. I suppose. And it then it transcends into this amazing cheerleading sequence oh, where yeah, she's yeah. kind of flying in the air, yeah. and these little moments kind of keep you going and just lift you from the mire of it yeah. for a bit. Um, but really cool. And we, the screenwriter, came out afterwards and told us yeah. about the story, and that um, the actress Danielle Vega uh, was originally just uh, she is a trans woman, and she was originally uh, just a uh, research like they just spoke to her about her life yeah. and then it's like right who do we find as an actress then oh we'll just we get go. the person yeah. that we already know <laughs> all right um so my last recommendation and that i saw this year would be sweet country um this is a australian western uh so set in the 1920s uh north australia i think it's north australia um and it's very similar to what we think was like the wild west of america and the Aboriginals are enslaved by um, the sort of white landowners. And it's about one of the slaves shoots a white man in self-defense and then goes on the run. Right. And um, it's very naturalistic. It's kind of a, quite a low-key Western. Um, but kind of in a similar way to The Shape of Water, um, the director, Warwick Thornton, gives a lot of different characters a character they're not just good guy bad guy you know they're kind of except Sam Neill Sam Neill's a very good guy <laughs> it's Sam Neill but he's also because um, I have interviewed the director and we'll be playing that interview when we review the film properly um, he talked about how like Sam Neill's character is not it's not that he's good he's naive right because he's a he's a holy man and he thinks oh we're all equal in the eyes of God and all this and he um, thinks God will just save everyone. So it's not necessarily that he's good, it's just sort of a naive innocence to him. Mm. But the, the editing of this film is incredible, where it will, kind of, while a character is in a scene, it will, uh, there'll be a jump cut to a moment in a char the character's past or the character's future. Just a oh, quick cool. shot. Just to kind of suddenly give you that feeling that 
this is a whole person. Yeah. That this is not just a person who's evil in this scene or good in this scene, that they have a past and a future that makes them this character now. That's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, highly recommend it. If you like Westerns, I think you'll love this. But it's also really great to see this part of the world and this time, this history on screen, because I really don't think I've seen it much mm. before. Um, so that's Sweet Country. Okay. Um, right, I'll just talk about the, the most recent film that I've seen, which is um, Claire Denis' Let the Sunshine In. And so Let the Sunshine In has got um, Juliette Binoche as a um, middle-aged artist, a successful artist, I think, in Paris. And she is uh, kind of in a, it's a mid, maybe a midlife crisis. She's not going out and buying Ferraris. It's more of a, it's a love life crisis. And the film doesn't it doesn't get swept up into a romantic comedy plot of oh here's a bad guy like here's the john ham from bridesmaids mm. and then we introduce the chris o'dowd but then she's not sure it's not that it's just, it's a string of just not kind of physically harmful relationships but just not great and it's like that kind of thing that maybe I don't know we wouldn't know but like once you reach a point in life you're not you're not maybe looking for kind of adventure and romance and mm. excitement all the time you're, you there's that element of you're looking at wanting security and just yeah. someone to be there to be content with just yeah, yeah. and like none of these men are that and it's just it that is the film it's just her going from one person to the next person she's, she's what's really it's really sad well i don't know people have kind of had different reactions to it and it's a film that i've really at the time i was i was into it but i wasn't kind of fully in love with it but out of most of the films that we've watched this is one that's really lingered with me actually and i even thinking about it before like oh, that's kind of, so yeah. kind of keep, like keeping me up a bit just thinking this is a really really sad film and the thing that makes it sad is that she is not that sad okay like she's actually really hopeful like yeah. someone on twitter uh said that she has so much feeling in her eyes and that's it like she's got these clashing emotions of like i like i could have sex with this man which is something that I want yeah. but he doesn't provide any financial security which is also maybe something that I want or he doesn't have the friendships that I want or he's not someone brings up oh this you this man is not in the same milieu as mm. you and she, she's got all these conflicting ideas about what she should have out of a romantic relationship and it feels like it's just kind of bursting out of Beanrush's face all the time and it, I, I think that person put it really well that she has so much feeling and um in at the beginning of each one she is just so hopeful she's, like, she's got a little bit of excitement there but you can see that that it's tinged with i've been here so many times before already and you just worry that this film is like although it maybe ends on a point that is a bit hopeful because we've seen it so many times in the film before you just know that this is just a part of the turning of the wheel and it's it's another circle of this relationship that she goes on it's, it's really sad and um, it's really beautifully shot as well and Binoche is excellent and yeah I really recommend Let the Sunshine cool. okay so that was it that's our LFF roundup uh, thank you very much for listening we'll be back next week 
to discuss. Yeah. Uh, I think we've got I Am Not a Witch, Witch, which actually played the festival yeah. as well. Um, so excited to bring that. And it looks like we're going to be able to bring you a Q&A um, from the premiere at Curzon Soho as well. Uh, Excellent. So really excited to bring that out. Cool. So thank you very much for listening. It's goodbye from Jake. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.